So Matthew 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him, you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. And now here's AJ Svoboda. <laughs> Wow. She, she knows how to read really well. Good job. Thanks for reading. Light the candle. Hi. Hi. Oh, my goodness. Look at you. Look at you. Where are you at, Evan? Where did Evan go? What's that? I can't. Oh, yeah. Yes. Let me. So you press that and then that. I was doing that. Yeah. So give it, give it a shot. Look at that. Light the fire in my soul. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Yes, it's so, so good to be with you this morning. And, and the opportunity to, to get to read, uh, to read the Bible and to, and to be back. This is my second time at Park Hill. And I don't know if you know this, but the last time I was here, I broke all the rules. And I preached for an hour and I think 20 minutes. And um, I, I got to hear about that. I won't be doing that today. Um, <laughs> But I, but I will share uh, an adequate amount out of the text that I, I hope is helpful. Um, and as we, as we begin, in all, in all truthfulness, um, Evan, Sandy, your hospitality is just uh, over the top. Thank you uh, for your rich kindness to us, your generosity. I'm full of gratitude. Our family is, uh, my wife Quinn, my son Elliot are with me today. Uh, we, um, yeah, we, we have a general rule in our family that um, whenever the Lord ca you know, calls us to repent of sin, we do it. Whenever he invites us to be generous, we do it. And, um, and whenever he gives us an opportunity to come to San Diego in December, we do it. So these are, these are sort of the marks of discipleship we really build um, uh, the way of Jesus on in our family. And it, so it's an honor to be obedient before the Lord with you today. And would really like to continue to be more obedient, more Decembers from here on out. So... Uh, this morning, uh, with the time that I've uh, been given, I I'd like to uh, actually talk about uh, a character that we just read about um, in, the in the text out of Matthew's Gospel. Um, my, my wife, Quinn, uh, when, when she, she she's, uh, preaches this just phenomenal message uh, on, on Mary, and when it's, it's really interesting when you, when you think about Mary, because um, Protestants, um, if, you, if you were raised in a Catholic um, home, you probably heard about Mary a lot, like that was a big part of your life, and um, because for many Catholics, there's such a high view of Mary, um, and, and frankly, actually, most Protestants, most Protestants have a wrong view of what Catholics think. Catholics don't worship Mary. They venerate Mary. It's very different. Uh, they honor Mary. But because of that, we sort of Protestants have a really ignorant view of Mary. We don't talk about Mary um, a lot. We're not going to talk about her this morning either. Um, not, not my point. I'm not dissing on Mary. I'm saying we don't think about Mary enough. We don't, she is not enough a part of our theology and we need to, we need to, bring, we need to bring Mary back. But I wanna to talk today about another character that I'm pretty convinced that we just, we just don't, we don't think a lot about, largely because we just don't, we don't know what to do with them. Um, and, I, and that is, I wanna talk about um, the earthly father of Jesus. And did you notice even by saying that, what word do you say about Joseph? I've, I've heard people use the word stepfather of Joseph, of Jesus, which doesn't make any sense. No divorce has taken place. Is he like the adopted dad of Jesus? Like the foster dad? I think actually foster dad might, I don't know. So I don't know what to call him. We're just going to talk about him. We're going to talk about the guy, the man who was given responsibility by God 
to make space for Mary, who is going to make space for Jesus. Christmas always invites us to re-understand loss. When you think about Christmas, it is natural. I think for, it's natural for us to think that Christmas is about, it's about receiving. And there is an element of Christmas that is all about receiving. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sidestepping that. But, but Christmas, the, like Advent and worshiping, worshiping the, ba- the babe that is Jesus, it, it, is, it, it, it actually incorporates a great deal of loss. Um, when you think about, when you actually, when you think about the, the original uh, Christmas story, um, there are all these characters that kind of come in. You know, the, the central character obviously is, is Jesus, but there are all these other characters that come in. You've got people like Herod. When you think about Herod, um, uh, Herod is so in, he's so infuriated about this baby that has come into the world that he actually tries to kill not only Jesus, but he tries to kill all the all the babies, all the male babies in the land. It, it, isn't it? I read in some book, you, there has to be something up in your life when a baby threatens all your power. Um, and, and for Herod, Jesus represents a threat to, um, it, it represents a threat to Herod's self-centeredness. Because, because Jesus, this baby king, is going to dethrone all kings. And so for Herod, Christmas represents the loss of power. Um, for the Magi, uh, who come to, the, they, they come to Jesus about either one or two years after Jesus has been born. He's not there, sorry Hallmark, he's not there um, the day Jesus is born. He, they, come, they come a few years after, and there's not three. All that are mentioned are the three gifts. We don't know how many Magi or men there were. But we're told that when they came, that they had left their homeland to come and worship baby Jesus. So they have left, they've in a weird way have done what Abraham did in Genesis 12. They have left everything to come to the land God would show them. They lose their homeland. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, uh, is in the temple, he has this vision, an angel speaks to him, and uh, Zechariah has a hard time believing. And what what happens, the angel takes his voice, God takes, Zechariah's voice. He loses his voice. We look at Mary. What does she lose? Um, And we'll talk about this. Uh, One couldn't only imagine she loses her entire sense of reputation and her sense of self. Um, Would would you believe a young 15-year-old girl who claimed what she claimed? And of course for Joseph... Um, he's going to lose all, in an honor-shame culture, he's going to lose all of his honor by actually making room for this woman that nobody would have believed in who's going to make room for God. Um, see, so Christmas, Christmas in a way, in, in, a, in a weird way, Christmas is really bad news for the narcissist. Because it is the yearly reminder that the universe is not centered on you. And actually, there's nothing more liberating than discovering you are not the center of it all. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And for an unhealthy three, Christmas is a confrontation. (laughs) Every year. An Orthodox, an Eastern Orthodox friend of mine once said to me this profound statement that is, um, we've all got a few statements we've put in our back pocket that just come back to us all the time. Uh, and it, this one never escapes me. He said, you know, if God only wanted to speak to our minds, if God only desired to speak to our minds, Mary would have written a book and not had a baby. 
The Christmas story is not merely the invitation to an intellectual ascent that God is with us. It is an invitation to smell, touch, see, and hold the babe again. When, when John begins his first letter, 1 John 1, he goes out of his way to mention all the senses. We saw him, we touched him, we heard him, we felt him. On this Christmas, we do not merely think about Jesus. We behold him in our arms. Joseph. I want to look at three angles of Joseph's life um, for just a few moments. Uh, I want to look at Joseph the dreamer. Uh, I want to look at Joseph um, uh, the lowly and Joseph the faithful. Joseph the dreamer. Um, who is this guy? Um, wh where does he come from? Um, very little um, is actually told to us in the Gospels about, uh, about Joseph. Um, we, we don't necessarily know. I mean, we do have Matthew 1, which tells us sort of his 23andMe rap sheet, you know, like where he comes from. Um, and it's no mistake, by the way, that when you look at the rap sheet, his, his sort of family line, in Matthew 1, it goes all the way back to the story of Abraham. Uh, and, 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 it, and, it, and it recounts stories like people like, like David. It, it goes back to David and Abraham, this, these stories of, of the, the fathers of the faith. And, and mothers, by the way, there's four women in Matthew 1, interestingly enough. Uh, there are four women mentioned in Matthew 1, which is the genealogy of Jesus uh, that lead to the story of Joseph. When you look at these genealogies and you, you look at, the, 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 again, the, the, the family uh, sheet here, uh, there's four women that are mentioned. Um, all of the women mentioned Tamar, uh, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah, uh, who's the, the, the uh, and, sorry, Bathsheba, who is the wife of Uriah, um, have a few things, things in common. Number one, they're all non-Jewish, uh, so they're not Jews. Number two, they all have mysterious meetings with men at night. Um, they're all recently widowed with non-traditional marriages. All of them make bold requests of some Israelite and eventually confess Yahweh as God. Um, I call this Matthew 1, I call it a twist beginning. It's not a twist ending, it's a twist beginning. It's, the, it's, an, it's, a, it's a surprising way to tell the story of Jesus. And Joseph, we know just a little bit about his family. He goes all the way back to, to Abraham. His story goes all the way back to Abraham. We know very little other than that. We know he's a carpenter. Um, we, we are told that Joseph uh, was uh, a carpenter. In fact, in Mark chapter 6, uh, the, the, the gospel, Mark says that Jesus was the son of the carpenter. Okay, So he was a carpenter. But very little is known about this guy. Uh, in, in the Gospels. One, just the one thing you got to see is this, his name. Because in the Bible, <laughs> names matter. Um, for some of us, uh, you know, in, in modern America, um, you have books at the grocery store for like names of people. Um, in, in Jewish culture, when you have a name like Joseph, <laughs> people are like, well, that, that's not, yeah, that's not the first Joseph. One, one of the cool things that the Bible does, let me, let me get just a little Bible, little Bible nerdery for a moment. Um, one, one of the things the Bible does is it, it, does, it has a very interesting feature where names of people not only are connected, but stories, right? Stories from like the Old Testament find these weird, beautiful interconnections with uh, the New Testament. Um, you could call it a character juxtaposition or something like that. The uh, Bible scholars call it intertextuality. And basically the idea is this. Have you ever been reading your Bible and, you're, and you, you come up upon something and you're like, wait, that's like not the first time that's there. That's like, oh, wait. Um, at, at Tim Mackey, the Bible Project, calls them hyperlinks. Where you, you see like one thing here and then you're like, oh, wait, oh, like, for example, when you read the Gospel of John, I've always, this has been one for me. Um, this is a, a, an interesting little feature of John's Gospel. Um, in the Gospel of John, where's the first miracle? It's at a wedding, right? It's at a wedding. And Jesus and his mom are there. And Jesus, um, show, he's at the wedding, and they've run out of wine. And it's interesting, Mary never tells Jesus what to do. She just states the facts. They're out of wine. So she never like tells Jesus to do it. She just says what happened. She just, and that's actually what faith is. 
Faith is saying what is true in the presence of God. It's like, I, I, it's true. We're out of wine. And I, have fi- I know there's someone here who can do something about it. So she says, you know, they're out of wine, and they get the water. They get water. They turn it into wine at the, at the first wedding. And it can't be a mistake to me. I mean, it cannot be a mistake that when you look at the end of John's gospel, that when Jesus hangs on a cross, some soldiers down below hand Jesus some wine, and he's stabbed in the side, what comes out? Water. The first miracle is he turns water into wine. And at the cross, he turns wine into water. Again, these, either these are like anomalies or something's up. Um, I was just teaching a class, Bible 100. It's like an intro to the Bible class for students that don't identify as Christians at the university where I teach. A lot of them are not Christians. And I had them do a final reflection. I said, what, you've read the Bible now for the first time. What is your number one reflection? And I had a, a female student who just said, I'm, I, for the, it's, it's interesting. It's almost like the people who wrote these stories knew what they were doing. That was her reflection. She'd just never seen the interconnectedness of these stories. She never saw, like, all these, all the, I mean, oh, there's so many of them. When Jesus, when, when God says to the man and the woman, he says to the land that, the, that because now of your work, the, the, your work will now, the land will now produce thorns for you. And when Jesus hangs on the cross, what does he wear? He wears thorns. The thorns are for you. We could go on for, so it's called intertextuality. Okay. And it's all throughout the Bible. Here's a great example. Do you remember after the Garden of Eden, when the man and the woman are banished from the Garden of Eden? Does anybody remember, I'll give you a little hint here, you've read John Steinbeck. Does anybody remember what direction from the Garden of Eden they are banished? Good job. <laughs> Two people in the room have read John Steinbeck, and most of us have read a quarter of it, so... It's a massive, I've read like half of the book. It's massive, massive. East of Eden. And if you look, go, go, dude, I'm not, don't take it from me. Go read your stuff. For the next eight chapters, every direction after Genesis 3, the east of Eden, guess what direction it goes? What direction? To the east. And there's a reason why. There's a geographical point being made that it's almost as though humanity is going further and further and further from what God desired. And things are getting worse, 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 worse. And then you come to Genesis 12. And God comes to this guy named Abram and he says, Abram, I'm gonna give you blessing. You're gonna bless the world. I'm going to give you kids. I'm going to give you a nation. Come to the land I will show you. And when you look at a map, Abram is an Ur, and he goes to the promised land. For the first time in the Bible, what direction do people go? To the west. What is God doing? He is bringing people back. And so when you and I read about the Magi who come to worship Jesus from, by the way, modern-day Iraq. What are they described as? The men from the East. Because when you return to Jesus, you're back in Eden. So this sets up Joseph, because when you look at Joseph, what we know about him is his name. That's what we know about this guy. His name is Joseph. And you friends, he has two dreams. He has two dreams. Dream number one, he has this dream that you're going to have a baby. His name is going to be Jesus. Even that's interesting. We call him Jesus. His name is actually, it's Yeshua in Hebrew, which is the word Joshua. His name was Joshua. When you read the stories of Jesus being baptized in the River Jordan, in the back of your mind, you should be like, this ain't the first time a Joshua's gone to the Jordan. He says, give him the name Joshua, Jesus, 
And then the second dream is the angel reveals to him, your son is, is God incarnate, and because of this, Herod is going to come after you, go to Egypt. Now, in the Bible, right, you and I, in the Bible, when people have dreams, have you ever had a dream about God? Has God ever given you a dream? Okay, they're, they're, they're crazy. I mean, you know it, by the way, when you have it. You wake up and, and there's this luminescent sense about it that you, you know, th- like, th- there was something in that. that. There's a weight in that, a depth in that. We've all had dreams. God speaks through dreams. By the way, right now, the biggest revival, the biggest movement of people coming to Jesus is happening in the world right now. Do you know where it's happening? In Iran. Predominantly of people having Muslims of having dreams about Jesus. God speaks through dreams. Now, because you and I live in a world shaped by Freud, we think that dreams are about us. And so we think, right, a dream is like, it's, it's, a, it's like our brain's way of like figuring stuff out. It's like, so you had a dream, it must, and by the way, we've got some therapists in the room, there's probably some truth to that. <laughs> I'm not lying. And Freud had some interesting, fa- fascinating concepts, um, and he shaped much of our world. But we tend to think of dreams as being about us, but in the Bible, dreams are about God. And Joseph has a dream about his son being worshipped and that he needs to go to Egypt. Is this the first Joseph in the Bible? Because actually, oh wait, if you go all the way back to Genesis 37, there's a story about Joseph, Abram, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. He's the fourth in the line of the patriarchs. The son, this great-grandson, great-great-great-great-grandson of Abraham. Joseph, what does he do? He has a dream. What's the dream? It's the, you, you read the dream and you're like, I'd want to kill you too. He has a dream <laughs> that his brothers, he has this dream that his 11 brothers are going to bow down before him. If your brother had that dream about you, you'd want to kill him. No wonder they want to sell him to slavery. That he has this dream about, the, about them bowing down before him. And what do they do? They sell him to Egypt. Joseph has a dream from God that every tribe, tongue, and nation will bow down at the feet of your son. And you need to go to Egypt. Joseph's the dreamer. And what you need to see about Joseph is you need to see this. This, this is, I mean, in, in the Joseph Old Testament story, they bow down to him. But for Joseph in the New Testament, they are now bowed down, bowing down to his son. Yeah. And what you need to see is this. Is that when you, when Jesus is appropriately made, when Jesus is received into your life, like Joseph, it will totally decenter you. I, I, actually, some, some of the dads in the room know exactly what I'm talking about because there's this experience that dads have. I've had it. It's the, weird, it's the weirdest experience. When, is, is when your, if your wife has a child, how profoundly jealous you get of your child because now they get all the attention. And before it was all you, baby. And all of a sudden, it's like, I am being threatened. I am no longer the one beholden of your eye. I, I have been displaced. To become a parent is a lifelong journey of being decentered. And when Joseph makes room, For Jesus, he is receiving the gift of being decentered. David Benner, one of my favorite writers, he says this Joseph was a man who was willing to allow God to interrupt his life. Like Mary, he had a life and he had plans for the future. Mary was part of that plan. 
engaged to be married. He was filled with hopes and dreams that anyone has at such a point in life. But finding his fiance pregnant by somebody else probably wasn't part of that dream. Joseph's submissive openness to God's will is every bit as astounding as Mary. And this is not, we're not taking Joseph and pitting Joseph against Mary. But it should be noted that both Mary and Joseph willingly carry a little cross to make room for the one who would carry the real cross. You know, I'm 42. Um, I I just turned 42 this last year, and it's a weird experience. For the first time in my life, I'm getting injured getting out of bed. I'm not kidding. Last year, I kicked the sheets off my bed, and um, I was limping for like two days, man. Um, Honestly, I feel like I'm just starting to do like the swan dive into my midlife crisis. And... There's many joys about it. There's many gifts about it. There's many good things about it. But I can tell you something I don't like about it. And I'm not calling it an actual midlife crisis. What I'm saying is like when you reach 42, 45, there's this weird moment where you start putting more trust into the numbers that they send you about your retirement account than you do in God. And you start, I don't know what happens, but you start believing this idea that you're orienting your life towards this moment when you are finally free to do, get to do everything you want to do. It's called the American dream. And I got to tell you, as much as there are elements of the American dream I love, I'm an American. I'm proud to be an American. I love our country. I love our country. But the dream that Joseph had was not the American dream. The dream that Joseph had was a dream that would mean he was decentered, displaced, and his call was to lay his life down to serve his son. We dream of upward mobility. The call of Jesus is what Henry Nouwen called downward mobility. It is a life of increasing servitude to God. I invite you, just by, as, I, as I finish up this first point, I invite you, Let the dream of God that he gives to you, let that dream of God put Jesus on the throne, not your 401k, not your future, not your dreams. May Jesus be on the throne. May that be the dream. Joseph the lowly, this is an interesting word. Joseph the lowly, the lowly. It almost sounds like, a, like, a, like, a, like an old, I don't know, time of uh, an old, like, I don't know, Joseph the lowly, like some kind of weird uh, a title you'd give to uh, a dwarf or something. Joseph the lowly, Joseph the lowly, Joseph the lowly. Um, Joseph is mentioned... Um, at the childhood of Jesus. Um, he, he is, he, he's mentioned uh, early on. Um, and actually, there's good, there's good evidence that Joseph actually was well-known in his town. And the reason we, we know this is because in Luke 4, if you go read Luke 4, um, they refer to Jesus, they ask a question, they go, is this Joseph's son? Implying they knew who this guy was. So he actually probably was a person with significant power, um, he probably was a person at a fairly uh, well-done business. I mean, he's, you know, he's there at the, at the childhood, and he's actually there. <laughs> uh, he's actually there when Jesus is a teenager, too. In fact, we have one story from Jesus' teenage years, and it is not a story you would expect to make it into the Bible. And it, but it's, in my opinion, it's, it's one, of those, one of those little stories that proves the Bible is the inspired word of God. Because Jesus, as a pubescent teenager, uh, gets lost in the temple for three days. And you got to put yourself in Mary and Joseph's shoes that you would have done everything to keep that story out of the Bible. Um, because the, the, way, way to go, guys. You had God and lost him, you know. Uh, I, I mean, I, again, I'm just, I'm just a lowly dad, but I would assume that's the kind of story you're like, let's make that a family secret, you know. Let's, let's just let's, let's keep that one a, 
That's, a, that's an us, us story. Um, but what's weird is after that story, which is even that, even that, the whole intertextuality thing is hilarious because, of course, when Jesus gets lost at 13, how many days does he get lost for? For three days. Won't be the last time Jesus gets lost for three days. <laughs> if, if you know what I mean. No, 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 no. Okay. Okay. And then he disappears. Um, he's actually never mentioned again. Uh, he's only mentioned in Matthew, Luke, and John. He's not even mentioned in Mark's gospel. And here's the even more astounding part, is that he is never once mentioned in the epistles, the letters, Revelation. He disappears. Uh, in fact, um, funny, Mary and, Mary and Elizabeth both get a song. Mary gets to sing the Magnificat. She, she is, she's the first woman worship leader in, in, in the New Testament. Who was the first worship leader in the Old Testament? Miriam. Miriam. Hmm. Hmm. What is Mary? It's Miriam. What's up? <laughs> Something's going on here, right? Mary worships, leads worship in the Old and New Testament. Elizabeth gets to lead a song, but look at this. This is notable in an ancient patriarchal culture. Who does not get to lead a song? Joseph or Zechariah. The voice is given to the women. Who else gets the voice? When Jesus resurrects, not the men. It's the women who go to the tomb, see it's empty, and preach the first Easter sermon. Um, you know, the, the sort of German, the German deconstructionist crowd back in the 1800s, 1900s would say, you know, you don't really, you can't really trust the resurrection stories because they're just fanatics who are like, who, who are just excited and whatnot. And they would say, you can't trust these stories. And I want to say, no, 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 actually, you know what the church does? We believe the women. We believe the women. And they saw it. And we believe them. The women get the voice. The men, actually, Joseph is silenced. The words of Joseph are not included. He is a quiet, obscure figure. The only thing we know that could have happened, or it's, the, it's our best guess, is in Mark chapter 6. Up to this point, Jesus has been called the son of the carpenter. And all of a sudden, in Mark chapter 6, he is called something different. He is called the carpenter. And what has happened is Jesus' has died, Jesus's dad has died, and he has taken over the family business. Isn't it interesting um, that you worship a God who knows what it's like to lose a dad? Um, for some of us in the room who maybe somewhere, somewhere along the road we lost our dad um, uh, or, or maybe our dad just wasn't ever really in the room. He was just there in the beginning or he left or something like that. I, I, I don't know about you, but as somebody who'd experienced that as a kid, my dad left when I was 11. I, the story of Jesus is extraordinarily comforting for somebody like me because I have believed at moments in my life, I have believed in moments in my life that I am scarred and unable to arrive at a place of maturity because I didn't have the best dad in the world. He wasn't there. And there's a lie that we all often believe that says that your future is determined by your 23 and me. And the gospel of Jesus in Jesus says, Jesus knew what it was like to not have a dad in the room. He knew it. And, you, and your future is not determined by the health of your family of origin. I can tell you, as a guy who has paid thousands of dollars in therapy, and thank God for my therapist, I just wish we had had one session to just name that. Not that it would have fixed me right away, but I just need you to hear, that is healing news for some of you today. Jesus gets you.
And, and, and even more than that is that Joseph, he just, he just fades. He just fades out. I, in my mind, I think of that, that gif with Homer just going back in the, <laughs> into the bushes. Like, here's Jesus and Joseph. He just sort of, and you, you know, I'm not, look at Mary. This is absolutely hilarious. Do you know what the, the last words of Mary are in the Gospels? In John chapter 2, at the, 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 the wedding in Cana, the, the last words out of Mary's mouth, this is the last thing she says, is she literally just says this, whatever he says, do it. Her lasting word is she's fading into the, whatever he says, do it. You have two parents that just fade him. Go to him. He's obscure. He embodies something that, friends, is so hard to find in men. Lowliness. He embraces it. I was, uh, it was really funny. I'm a, I'm a theologian, I'm an academic. And, you know, when you do, when you're an academic or you're a theologian, I'm, tra- I'm a trained theologian, which means that my job is to make God confusing for people. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, the, a good theologian, their job is to help, um, help mysteries come alive. Not that mysteries need help, but it's good to help, um, help, help bring, um, bring them to life, as it were. Um, when, you, when you go on and do higher level education, there's this weird thing that's put in you where you kind of hope you're gonna become a big deal. One of my greatest temptations as a man has been that I want to look smart. Uh, it's really hard for me. In fact, even standing in front of you, I catch myself calm, and calm always, like, should I quote that Greek text to make it sound like I know what I'm talking about? Should I quote that person that like, you're all like, oh, he's a deep reader. Like, I wanna do that. Like, I wanna look smart. I, I value it a lot, and, and it's an idol in my life. I name it, I confess it, and I repent of it. It's a real struggle for me. And so there's this thing where you like, you kind of want to become, um, you know, like you want people to be like, you're the next N.T. Wright, or you're the next, you know, when you just want, you want that. And I was, um, I was teaching this class uh, in Chicago, it was a graduate level course, a systematic theology graduate course with a group of Pentecostal and charismatic pastors in Chicago. I'm teaching this class at this awesome seminary. And this Hispanic, this really quiet Hispanic pastor after the first day, the first day was awesome. We were just getting into it. We did, I did a whole lecture on Bigfoot. It was like phenomenal. They were all into it. It was really fun. We were having a great time. And this pastor comes up to me. He's trembling. He was terrified to talk to me. And he said, I need to share something with you. I had a dream about you last night. And, and, and by the way, have you ever had somebody you don't know tell you that they've been dreaming about you? Or that God spoke to them on your behalf and you don't know them. You ever had this experience? Yeah. yeah. What's odd if you haven't had that experience? He, and he says, I had a dream about you last night and I feel like God wants me to tell you this. I feel like God wants you to know that you are a low level theologian. I'm saying at that moment, it, it took every ounce of the Holy Spirit in me to not say, well, you're a low-level student. <laughs> you know, like, who, who, I wanted to say, who are you? I, do you realize I'm grading you? I'm, these are the things going through my mind as I'm just, but, you know, I'm a good charismatic, so I say, well, let me discern that for a little bit and kind of process that with my community and my wife and I'll think about it. And, but I was in fear. I went back to my hotel room. He was trembling. He was so scared to tell me. And I went back to my hotel room and that night I did not sleep and I was livid. Who is this guy? A low-level theologian? Who are you? 
And I came back to class the next day and he sat in the same spot and I could tell it was awkward for him because he felt like he, he felt like he was supposed to say it. And I barely looked at him the whole lecture. I was just like, I just was, I, I was angry. And I came home and I, I, have you ever had something and you can't stop thinking about it? I couldn't put it down. It just kept going. You're a low-level theologian. You're a low-level theologian. You're a low-level theologian. And it wouldn't go away for nearly a month. And all of a sudden, I was up in the morning one morning, and all of a sudden, it just like an epiphany struck me. What if it's God? And I was like, that's mean, God. Like, you, why would you tell me that? And, and it just, it dawned on me. The problem is not what God has said. The problem is that I'm allergic to lowliness. And I hate lowliness. I hate it. I want to be big. I want to be important. I want to be known. I want people to quote me on their podcast. I want glory and fame. I don't want to be forgotten. I don't want to be lowly. And it friends, I am a low-level theologian. You know what that means? I am not called to serve at Harvard. In the, I'm not called to be in the high, like, I'm not called to be, as some of my friends are at Princeton and whatnot. I'm called by Jesus to be a theologian who serves the church, real people on the ground with the lowly. It is actually the calling on my life. You are called to be lowly. And you probably, maybe God brought me here to tell you that. The problem is not the call. The problem is that you've been trained to think that lowliness is a bug and not a feature of the Christian life. As Joseph fades into the background, his life has meaning because he's magnifying Jesus. May you be lowly and embrace every last minute of it. Magnify the Lord. I sent an email to that pastor, Mario, and I said, you were right. And he said, si, senor. <laughs> and Joseph the faithful. He takes her home. That line, the, the angel says, take her home, take her, take her home. Whether you see it or not, again, this intertextuality thing, this is a total reversal of something that you and I have seen in the Bible, is that you see somebody taking somebody home in the midst of what per is perceived to be their shame. And friends, this isn't the first time in the Bible, except in, in, the, in the beginning story, of course, our origin story, the man and the woman, in their, in their own shame, what do they do? They point their fingers at each other. The man points the finger at the woman and says, it's her fault. And here in this moment, Joseph, at this moment around Jesus, the gospel is that all of the shame bearing of the gospel is undone. He doesn't shame his wife. He takes her home. The cursing words of the man over the woman are undone. He takes the woman home. Who will be the one who will crush the head of the serpent. He takes her home. He takes her home in the midst. Friends, if you had a 14-year-old girl tell you what Mary would have told people, would you believe? Friends, she lived her whole life under a cloud of scrutiny. You can hear people whisper about her at parties that she's a whore, she was a liar. You can hear it. 
her whole life. She would have lived her whole life with that. And she knew her story was true. Joseph believed her. Can you imagine for Mary, I mean, if she spent her life not being believed, you know what moment would have meant the world to her is the resurrection. Could you imagine being in the room with all these dudes who are like, could we believe you? And, and, and Jesus shows up resurrected and she just goes like, <laughs> I told you so. I've been telling you for years. And you know what would have added to that? Just You know what would have added to, 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 to her, that reputation? It's interesting because to, to bear Jesus is to incur the wrath of bad assumptions. To bear the name of Jesus is to incur the wrath of wrong assumptions. They probably assumed she had slept around. They probably assumed this. And you know what made it worse? Have you ever looked at a picture of yourself and you have this epiphany that you look just like both your parents. So for example, look at this little thing. Don't get too close after the service, but you can see there's this little freckle right here, which I got from my mom right here. And it's a gift, but I, I'll get the gift removed soon, I hope. But it's, there's a gift here. My mom has one in the same spot. Look at this, look at this, look at this. I got that from my mom. Look at this skin. I have like buttery, smooth, Czechoslovakian skin. It's just, let's be honest with ourselves. I mean, it is just, it's glorious. And I got it from my dad. I got it from my dad, because he, he my family's from Czechoslovakia. I am a perfect combination of my mom and my dad. If you took me and my dad and my mom and looked at us, you'd be like, hey, look, it's like you had two parents. There's your mom's frickle and your dad's glorious skin. Think about this. Jesus, if we believe in the virgin birth, Jesus would have looked nothing like his dad. You would look at Jesus and you would not say, oh, that's Joseph's kid. You would say, he is all Mary. In fact, when Joseph receives Jesus, ooh, take the, ooh, when Jesus receives his son as God, he is receiving a God who does not look like him. It is idolatry that only loves God as long as he looks like us. To love God is to love him even when he doesn't look like you. Joseph would have lived his entire life with his friends saying, you know Mary's been lying to you, right? You, you know she's tricking you. You know this is all a sham, right? You know that. And he took, <laughs> he took Mary home. I want to close um, It is so risky to take this woman home. It's terrifying. But it is life. And this Advent, this is not about Joseph and Mary. They would be mad if they were the center conversation here. They bear to us life himself and want to ask you take him home take him home would you stand with me please do this with me um, do this with me if, if it's at all possible with um with your hands, would you put your hands out as a posture of receptivity oh, like this? Yeah, yeah. Just like this. 
I do have a sense this, uh, this morning, I do have a sense from the Lord that there's, there's something that needs to be spoken in the room. Um, and I, I did, I want to be very clear. I don't want to be dece- deceitful. I said this in the first gathering and I still have the same sense today uh, in our second. And, I, and if, if it is from God for you, I ask you to take it with you. Uh, but I have this sense today that for some of us, we have been willing to give foothold to a lie that says because my dad wasn't in the room, I am bound to, to fail. Or that because my dad wasn't a good dad or because my dad left when X, Y, and Z, I am bound. And I want the gospel to hit home for you today. That you would hear Jesus say, your genealogy ain't your future. And the one who knows what it's like to not have a dad in the room is the one who comes to lead us to the Father. You have a God that knows what it's like to not have a dad in the room. Find unity with him. Be touched by him. Jesus. Holy Spirit. With your hands out like this, maybe just, um, God, with our hands out um, as a posture of receptivity, um, we cry, we cry, God, with our hearts. We cry, God, with our hearts. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Would you decenter us, God? Would you give us the glory of periphery, of not being at the center? Would we be found among the throngs of people that worship at the Lamb, the center of the room? Would we be found among the tribes and the tongues and the nations that are not at the center, but know how to find their, their meaning in the center? Would our attention, be, our attention be on the center? Our eyes are on the center, Jesus. You are the King. You are our glory. You are our love. And we give you all of our shame and receive mercy and bounty in response. We hear the voice of your mother, Mary, who said, whatever he says, do it. We hear it and we will spend our life doing it. Doing, Jesus, whatever you said. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And so we cry, Holy Spirit, in this moment, Holy Spirit, anoint us. In the next couple of weeks, some of us are going to go home and we are dreaded by the conversations and fear and anger and, and, and hard family of origin things. And we need the power of the Holy Spirit to go home, to take the gospel home with us. As we return home, would you send us with love and mercy, with blessing? Please, God. Please, God. Thank you, Jesus. This Advent, we say we love you, Jesus. Can we sing? Can we sing?